0: What a glorious day to be inside the house of the Lord. Kids on the rock, you guys can go. Uh, just a quick announcement before we begin. Well, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. But uh, our quarterly members meetings, January 24th. So that's going to be two Wednesdays from, a, well, a week from Wednesday, I guess. Uh, 630. Uh, if you want to be on that agenda, you can contact the office and Wednesday activities resume this Wednesday. So this Wednesday, everything goes back to normal. All right. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. I, I lost my voice several times in the first service, but uh, I've, been, uh, I've been sucking on cough drops for a couple of hours, and hopefully it'll, it'll last us till we get through. Um, in, in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and we're going to continue a thought that began in the last few verses of chapter 4. There the writer introduced Jesus as our high priest, a great high priest, he says in verse 14 of chapter 4. And continuing that thought, today we're going to talk about Jesus as our perfect high priest. Now today, especially, especially amongst us Baptists, the idea of needing a priest is kind of foreign, kind of strange... Uh, but to the Hebrews, to which this was written, it wasn't strange at all. In fact, it was assumed. It was, it's just common knowledge. There's nothing, there was nothing more central to what it meant to be part of Israel than the need for a priest to mediate between you and God. And although that idea is, is strange to us, it is still true today. You need a priest. No human being can come to God without a mediator. Without a high priest, without one who stands between the sinner and God. A priest is necessary because God himself established the priesthood as a way for sinners to come to him. It was his idea. And no one can come to God except by the way the Lord himself has appointed. The holy God doesn't give special privileges. You must have a mediator, a high priest to represent you before God, make atonement for your sin. And praise the Lord, we have a priest, a perfect high priest, Jesus Christ the righteous, seated on the throne, interceding for us by the blood of his sacrifice. At the end of chapter 4 last week, the writer exhorted the professing Hebrew Christians to hold fast to their confession. Even in the face of suffering and persecution, we've talked about it many times going through the book of Hebrews. These Hebrews were facing suffering and persecution from all sides, and it was tempting to turn back to Judaism, to turn back to the old way, turn back to what we've always known, and relieve ourselves of all of this suffering, all of this persecution. In the last part of chapter 4, once again, the writer said, Don't turn from following Christ. Despite the consequences in this world, hold fast to your confession. And in those verses, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, last week, we looked at why we hold fast our confession and how we hold fast our confession. Let's read those verses just to remind ourselves of where we've come from. He said, since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. That's his command, his admonition. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is, in, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence or boldness, your translation may say, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace To help in time of need. We talked extensively last week about that. He's not telling them just, hey, hang on by your own strength, do the best you can. He's saying, no, go to the throne and find the grace that you need to help you in your time of need as you hold fast to your confession. In that text, verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4, the writer introduces for the first time in this book, Jesus as our high priest. A a subject that's going to take up pretty much the majority of the rest of the book. And because we have a great high priest, he says, these suffering Hebrews can draw near the throne of grace and find help in the time of need. They aren't enduring their suffering alone. They aren't enduring it in their own strength. Their high priest stands with them. The writer says, go to him, go to the throne boldly because you have a high priest and find grace to help in your time of need. Now, for a Hebrew that's steeped in the Levitical law, in the culture of Judaism, having grown it, it's all they've ever known, there would still be some nagging questions about Jesus as my great high priest. The law says all priests have to come from the tribe of Levi, Levi, descendant of Aaron, Jesus from the tribe of Judah. How can he be qualified to be my high priest? The writer is going to take in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5. He's going to show these Hebrew Christians and us that Jesus Christ not only meets the qualifications of the high priest. He exceeds them all. He is the superior high priest. A better high priest than all who have come before him. And therefore at the end of this section he says... He is the source of your eternal salvation. Let's read verses 1 through 10 and then we will dissect them together. It says this, after he's already introduced Jesus as the great high priest and told them to go to the throne to find help. He says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently or compassionately, your translation may say, with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Verses 1 through 4 are basically just the qualifications of a high priest. 5 through 10, in reverse order, shows how Jesus fulfilled these, these qualifications. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, in this text today, I pray that you would... Um, enlighten our hearts, that you would apply it to our lives, that you would show us what you would have us to know today, God. We ask that you would come and that you would speak. We need you this morning for clarity's sake. God, we need you to speak to our hearts. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said before, verses one through four are basically simply the qualifications of a high priest, and they are given uh, basically in this general form to show you the basic qualifications. The first qualification he gives is that the high priest, number one, must represent the people with sacrifices for atonement. Verse one, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. The nature of the high priest's task at its most basic level is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. His job was to make atonement for the sin that separated the people from God. And he was to represent the people before God. Gifts in that verse refers to all the non-bloody sacrifices, the non-bloody offerings, the incense, the grain offerings, the drink offerings, all of the things that were called for in the law for various reasons. Sacrifices, of course, are the animal offerings, the blood offerings requiring the blood of atonement, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the guilt offering, all the things that they brought, the animals that they brought. At, at its most at the, the most simplest level, the most basic level, that's the nature of the high priest's job. To mediate between God and man through offerings. That's the first qualification. The second qualification is that the high priest has to represent the people and he must identify with them in their weakness and in their need. Verse 2 says he can deal gently or compassionately with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness because of this he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people so knowing his own sin his own need the high priest must understand the plight of the people in order to represent them before god he must sympathize with them, if you want to say it that way. The word that is used earlier in verses 4 through 16 of chapter 4. He must be able to deal compassionately with them, with the ignorant, those who sin unknowingly, and the wayward, those who wander from the path of righteousness. The writer says the high priest can deal gently with the people And represent the people because he identifies with them. Because he himself is beset or clothed with their weakness. You see it in the text? He bears the same weakness, the same sin as they do. Now, this doesn't mean that the high priest can have a tolerant or indifferent view of sin. He must deal with that sin that separates the people and himself from God. Verse 3 says he is obligated. He must, he has to offer a sacrifice for himself. And for his own sin, before he dares to come forward to offer a sacrifice for the people. On the day of atonement, the high priest would enter into the court of the tabernacle. And before he could step foot into the holy place, much less the holy of holies, he had to stop at the brazen altar in the court and offer sacrifice for his own sin. And so what we see here, this second qualification is to be qualified to be a high priest... You must identify with the weakness and the need of the people in order to represent them before God. And finally, the third qualification he gives in these first four verses, the high priest must simply be appointed by God. He says in verse four, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. This is not a democratically elected office or one that... The powerful or the influential could claim for themselves. A true high priest of God was chosen and appointed by God, or through the procedures and processes God put in place, being born of Aaron. This qualification was demonstrated several times in Israel's history. In number 16, a man named Korah and his followers challenged Moses and Aaron as God's representatives. They said, Well, we're all holy. We can all go before God. And the Lord opened up the ground and swallowed them. In 1 Samuel 13, King Saul took it upon himself to offer sacrifices before the Lord as a priest should. As Samuel was supposed to. And God removed the kingdom from him. In 2 Chronicles 26, a king named Uzziah, a godly king, assumed he was able to offer incense before God. And God struck him with leprosy until the day that he died. Only those called and appointed by God are qualified to function as the high priest. Now in these first four verses, we've learned the qualifications, basically as the writer of Hebrews puts them, of the high priest. The writer has laid out, really, basically, you probably could make some more, but the basic three that are here in these first four four verses are simply this. If you're going to be a high priest, you must represent the people with atoning sacrifice. You must identify with the people's weakness and their need. And you must have been appointed by God. You can't take this office on just because you want to. Now, what's going to happen here in verses 5 through 10, as we switch to uh, those verses, he's going to show the Hebrew Christians that not only does Jesus meet these qualifications, but he exceeds them. He is a better high priest, a superior high priest, and the only high priest who can represent them before God and help them hold fast in their time of need. Are you with me? Okay, close enough. We're going to go anyway. To show this in verses 5 through 10, he takes these three qualifications and he flips them upside down, starting with the third one first, then goes to the second, and then to the first. So the next thing he's going to show us in verse 5 is how Jesus has been appointed by God. Then he's going to show us how Jesus identifies with the people's weakness and need. And then he's going to show us how Jesus represents us being the source of our eternal salvation. The first He goes and he explains to us Jesus' superior appointment. Jesus has been appointed to a superior place than all the other high priests before him. He says this, "To, to, to show Christ has been appointed by the Father above all others, he quotes two Psalms. What I'm going to do in each of these points, I'm going to give you the main point. I'm going to show you how, what the argument of the author is in these verses. And then we're going to take the little puzzle pieces within the verses, and we're going to explain them one by one, and then we're going to put them all back together to show you how the point applies. Okay? Are you with me? <laughs> okay. Uh, I know I lost some of you right there, but we're going to, we're going to try it. The main point, verses 5 and 6, Jesus has been appointed To a higher priesthood than all other priests before him. That's the main point. To show this, he quotes these two psalms. We're going to look at them one at a time. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2-7. Now, we've seen this quote before. It's also quoted in Hebrews 1-5. Remember, we talked about it there. Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm. It's speaking of God's appointment of the king. The psalm was read every time a new king took the throne of Israel. But it's also a prophetic psalm and a messianic psalm. Meaning it was looking forward to a coming king who is also a son of God. It says so in the psalm. So the writer of Hebrews quotes this verse from Psalm 2 pointing to the son having been appointed as king ruling over the nations. And then, secondly, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. Verse 6 of our passage says, As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is also a psalm describing God's king. The first verse in Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This psalm speaks of a king who goes forth from Zion. Zion. And he says, the Lord has sworn in verse four, that this king is also a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? The book of Hebrews is going to go into more detail about him later and how it applies to Jesus. But here, just for the sake of understanding, let me give you kind of a high level sketch of Melchizedek. Melchizedek first appears in the Bible in Genesis 14. Where Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils that he won in battle rescuing his nephew Lot. We don't know anything about Melchizedek's origin or his lineage. All that's said about him is that he was a king of Salem, later called Jerusalem. And he was a priest of the Most High God. That's what's said about him in Genesis 14. El Elyon, the Most High. So in Genesis, during Abraham's day, we find a priest of God in this pagan land. We don't know how he got there. We don't know how he became a priest. We don't know anything about his lineage. And we don't know what happened to him after Abraham left it. Melchizedek uh, disappears from the biblical record and is not heard from again. The next mention of his name is in Psalm 110 where a coming king ruling over the nations would also be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Because of the mystery surrounding this man, who, he, who is a priest and a king, Melchizedek came to symbolize a priesthood that was more ancient than Aaron's. One without beginning and without end. Where the priest himself was also God's king. So put these two psalms together, these two quotes together. The writer of Hebrews is showing that Jesus' appointment as high priest is superior to all of the Levitical priests that have come before him. All of those who are in Aaron's line. Jesus, God has appointed Jesus the office of both king and priest. And because he is in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews will later tell us, his priesthood is forever. Forever. Because Jesus will never die. He lives forever to make intercession for his people. So Jesus not only fulfills the requirement of being appointed by God to represent man. He also supersedes that. Having been appointed as priest and king. Now the writer moves to the second qualification. And he shows Jesus perfectly identifies with his people. It says this. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Better translation is reverent submission. NIV has it that way. Although he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now listen, the point here, the big point, big picture point is The earthly high priest identified with the people through his own sin, his own failure, his own need for sacrifice. He could deal with them gently because he's a sinner just like they are, understanding their weakness. Jesus identifies with his people on a much deeper level, suffering through all of humanity's weakness, from all that temptation had to offer, coming from outside, yet without sin, Let's look at each piece of this puzzle one at a time. During his earthly life, the days of his flesh, our high priest made offerings. He offered up prayers and supplications, it says, with loud cries and tears. He prayed. We talked about this last week. He drew near to the throne of grace to find help in his time of need. Just what the author of Hebrews told us to do in verse 16 of chapter 4. It says here in the text, he prayed to the one who was able to save him from death with loud cries and tears. The writer's talking about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. His. Suffering, his agony when he sweat drops of blood, praying to the one who was able to save him from death, pleading to God that this cup of suffering, this cup of wrath would be removed from him. In that hour in the garden, Jesus suffered and was in agony. Mark chapter 14 says this, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Then he says this, look. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And in the very same breath... Yet not what I will, but what you will. You know, often we misunderstand the suffering and the anguish that Jesus struggled under that night. It wasn't just the anticipation of a horrible death that's coming by crucifixion. Later, Christian martyrs would proudly and happily, joyfully go to their deaths for Christ. Even horrible deaths. They would do so with a smile on their face. Was Jesus less than they? Of course not. The anticipation of physical torture and physical death was not what racked Jesus with suffering that night. Jesus' death would be like no other has ever experienced. He wasn't just facing the Roman lash and the nails of the cross and, and the suffocation of being crucified or the experience of death. On the cross, for the first time in all of eternity, God the Son would experience the holy wrath of the Father for sin. For the first time, the Son would know what it is like to be cut off from the Father and punished under judgment, and not just one person's sin, but the sins of the world. No one has ever experienced that before or after. There have been people that experienced God's wrath upon them for their sin as they are tormented separated him from him for eternity but no one has ever experienced the wrath of God for the sins of all of God's people. In anticipation of what no human being had ever experienced As that drew closer, Jesus, who is fully human, suffered in agony, even praying that this cup of wrath would be removed from him. Now pay attention to what the words actually say in verse 7. As Jesus faced the wrath of God for sin, facing the greatest trial, the greatest suffering any human, human being had ever known, He suffered and agonized. And it says he prayed to the one who was able to save him, deliver him from death. As he pleaded for this cup to be removed. The father is able. The father was able to let this cup pass from him. Deliver him from this death he was about to endure. And the writer tells us in verse 7. Jesus' prayer was heard. He says and he was heard. Because of his reverent submission. It's a better way to translate it. Because not my will but your will. When it says he was heard. That doesn't mean his prayer just reached the destination. It means his prayer was answered. It's used that way many times in the Bible. Your prayer has been heard. It's what the angel said to Cornelius. Rest assured, your prayer has been heard, meaning it is answered. But hold on. He prayed to the one who was able to save him from death, and his prayer was heard. No, it wasn't. He still died. He still went to the cross. The cup didn't pass from him. He had to drink it. The father didn't let the cup pass from Jesus, but his prayer was heard. Instead, the father gave him the help in his time of need to endure the trial that the Lord had set before him. Just as he told us in verse 16 of chapter 14. Jesus went to the throne of grace receive help in his time of need. In Luke chapter 22, which is the same scene, the Garden of Gethsemane, it says, and, he, and when he, he withdrew from them, about a stone's throw, knelt down, prayed, saying, God, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Have you ever read verse 43 four? And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening. Now, if you continue reading in Luke 22, the next few verses show Jesus still in agony. Jesus still praying, God let this cup pass from me. But from the time he rises and walks out to meet his disciples, he is resolute to go to the cross. Jesus identifies with his people in their weakness. Jesus did in his suffering and his trial What the writer of Hebrews just told the suffering Hebrew Christians to do. Hold fast to your confession. Go to the throne of grace to find grace to help in your time of need. Now when we hear this, there are some objections. I'm going to get to it. Just hold on. We hear this, we immediately object. I mean, Jesus is God. Sounds awful weak to be a God. To be the God, the only God. Yes, but Jesus is also fully human. And going through this suffering as a man, as a human being, was necessary for Jesus to identify with you as your high priest and represent you before the Father. Verse 8 tells us although he was a son, meaning the son, the son of God. He learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. What does that mean? Does it mean Jesus was not obedient before, but then he became obedient in the God? Of course not. Stop it. What does it mean he learned obedience? Listen, the Son of God experienced what it's like To obey the Father when His human nature, His human weakness, suffered for it. Do you understand? Before taking on a human nature, He never suffered for the Father's will. Let's put it in our context. Maybe it will help you understand a little better. We can talk about obedience We can think about obedience. We can even walk in obedience in various ways to God's will. But as a frail human being, you don't truly learn obedience, the depth of obedience, until obeying God's will goes against every inclination of your heart and every temptation from the world, the flesh, and the devil. When temptation from all around you comes and says you can't do that. And if you do, you will suffer. That's when you learn obedience. When everything inside of you says I can't do this. And God's word says that's exactly what I want you to do. In that moment you will come to God in reverent submission. Saying, not my will, but yours be done, or you will disobey. That's what learning obedience means. When you pray for healing, and it doesn't come. Not my will, but yours. When you pray to be relieved from this suffering, this trial that I'm going through. And you realize, this is exactly where God wants me. Not my will but yours. When you say, God, if I do this, they will kill me. And the answer comes, then you go die. What a message for these Hebrew Christians who were tempted to turn away from Christ because they were suffering. Jesus can identify with you. He understands your weakness and your need better than you do. Now, I got to say, make sure they be careful not to take this farther than what the author of Hebrews intends. The suffering and the trial of the cross was not a surprise to Jesus. He was not surprised in the garden thinking, oh, no, I have to go through this. I don't want to do that. From all eternity, Jesus chose to take on flesh. He chose to give his life on the cross. As he walked with the disciples, he told them he was going to go to the cross. He told them he was going to rise from the dead. Even as he prayed, let this cup pass from me in the garden. It wasn't a surprise to him. And it wasn't that suddenly Jesus decided, I don't want to do what the Father has called me to do. No, it was his humanness, his weakness of being human that was suffering in the same breath that he said, Let this cup pass from me. He said, Not my will. He wanted to do the will of the Father. His will and the Father's will were aligned, but his human nature suffered for it. The Old Testament high priest identified with the people through their common need for sacrifice. He's a sinner just like their sinners. Jesus, the perfect high priest, identifies with you, his people, on a much deeper level. He endured more than you will ever endure. He endured more than you ever have endured. He took the full force of temptation's power and conquered it. Learning obedience as a man through his suffering. So not only is he able to sympathize with you in your weakness as we were told at the end of chapter 4 he overcame that weakness for you. He can represent you perfectly before the Father as your high priest. Because not only can he understand and identify with your need but he conquered that need for you. And because he did so He can fulfill the last qualification. Make perfect atonement. Jesus perfected salvation for his people. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Made perfect doesn't mean he was imperfect before he suffered. And his suffering made him perfect as if it washed away whatever flaw he had or whatever sin he had. The word means, the word perfect means complete. He was made complete through suffering. Jesus, God and man, was made complete as the Savior mankind needs, as the High Priest mankind needs through his suffering. So he can identify with you, so he can represent you before the Father. He was made complete as the perfect representative for humanity, the perfect atonement, the perfect sacrifice for humanity, a perfect high priest who has conquered sin by his own sacrifice and can forever represent you before a holy God. He was made a savior and source of eternal salvation through his righteous life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. The writer saying, here is your perfect high priest. Don't turn away from him. He says he is the source of eternal salvation for all those who... What do you expect? What does the verse say? The source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Is the writer suddenly claiming salvation by works? No. Read the sentence. Is obedience the source of our eternal salvation? No. Jesus is the source of our eternal salvation. The writer is saying the same thing he said all the way through the first five chapters. Obedience characterizes and flows from your salvation. So what does he mean here, though? I mean, that's what the verse says. The eternal salvation of all who obey him. What does that mean? Remember the audience that he's writing to. And once again, as I've told you before throughout Hebrews, let the author of Hebrews define his own terms. Up to this point, chapter 5, the commands to be obeyed in this letter all point in a single direction. In chapter 2, verse 1, he told us to pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift. In chapter 3, verse 1, what are we to do? Consider Jesus. We talked about it there. Think on him. Set our minds on him. Chapter 3, verse 6, hold fast to our hope. Chapter 3, verse 12, guard against the heart of unbelief. In chapter 4, strive to enter his rest. In verse 14 of chapter 4, hold fast to your confession. In verse 16, we read earlier, draw near to the throne of grace. Do you see every command he's given us in five chapters? Do you see what they all are founded on and revolve around? Hold on to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Hold fast to your hope in him. Now make sure you understand later on in the book of Hebrews, we are going to get several commands, a lot more commands. He's going to talk about lots of different things that we are to do. And that the truth from Scripture rings through Hebrews, that it is from the heart of faith that obedience flows. Salvation is a supernatural transformation of the heart and life. And when the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, they change. Hearts desire to follow Christ. When the Holy Spirit dwells in them. They desire to serve Jesus. To obey his commands. The person who says to me. I believe in Jesus. I prayed the prayer. But I don't care anything about following Jesus. That person is lost as a golf ball in tall grass. And if they die. They will bust hell wide open. So we must examine ourselves. To see whether we are of faith. But make no mistake. Salvation is by grace. Through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The point he makes in verses 1 through 10. Is these suffering Hebrew Christians not able to endure these trials. Tempted to go back and make their life easier. Listen, I go back to Judaism. I go back to the old way, the old temple, the old sacrifices, the old priests. My suffering ends like that. My family accepts me, my community accepts me, and Rome leaves me alone because Judaism was a protected religion. My suffering ends. All I have to do is go back. The writer's saying, don't go back. Hold fast to Jesus. He's better. He's a better temple. He's a better sacrifice. He's a better high priest. He's better than a life without suffering in this world. You have a high priest that understands your weakness. That understands your suffering in the trial that you're going through right now. He understands better than you do. And he's been appointed by the Father as king and priest for you to represent you before him. Don't turn from him. He's the source of eternal salvation for you. Run to him. Run to Him in faith. Cast yourself upon Him and find grace to help in the time of need. Hold fast to Christ because He is better than all. He is better than you getting released from your trial. Run to Jesus Christ. Hold fast to Him. He's better. Let's pray. Father, we do love You. We thank You for Your Word. God, I just pray that you'd use the word that we have read, that you would speak to us through it, that you would apply it to our hearts. God, we thank, you for, we thank you for our high priest, Jesus. We come to you thanking you for your intercession, for your blood, for your mercy, for your love, for your understanding of our weakness, taking upon yourself a human nature. Jesus, we adore you. Father, we pray that you would move our hearts to follow you. To give honor to your son. To kiss the son. God, to, to spend the rest of our lives holding fast to Jesus in faith. Regardless of what his will for our lives are. God, I pray pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that hasn't trusted in you, maybe they're just trying to work, to do better, to be better, to act better, to live better. All that's fine and good. God, I I pray that you would show them the futility of trying to earn merit before you and the simplicity of just falling down before you in a repentant faith. Believing that Jesus died for me, he rose from the grave for me, he sits enthroned in the heavens for me, and when I die from this life, and I go and stand before Him, he will be a mediator for me. God, it's by faith. I pray that you would draw hearts to yourself by faith. We thank you, we love you, in Jesus' name. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. I would love to pray with you if you want to come. Will you stand as we sing?